Mark chapter number 10 and verse number 17. This morning we're going to read about a young man who thought he had it all. We're going to be reading about a young man who had great possessions, and with that he had no doubt great popularity. And because of that, he thought he possessed eternal salvation. A young man who thought he had it all. The text before us in just a moment really addresses the important question, who or what should have first place in our life? What or who should have first place in our life? If you will recall, Jesus at this point is continuing on his journey to Jerusalem. For there in Jerusalem, he is going to be arrested and tried and eventually crucified and uh, paying for the sins of all those who believe. But Jesus, as he's continuing to make this journey, he is engaging with his disciples and he's teaching them about true discipleship. He is teaching them about what a follower, a disciple of Jesus really means. And along the way in chapters 10, he has been teaching on things such as marriage and divorce and remarriage. And he's been uh, teaching on those things and, and his disciples have been struggling to grasp what he's trying to teach. And there's been several times throughout the book of Mark but even here in this particular chapter where the disciples question Jesus as to the meaning of the things that he taught. He questioned in Mark chapter 10 and verse 10 where the disciples questioned Jesus, what do you mean about this? And then we saw a couple of weeks ago where Jesus was receiving the little ones, the children unto himself, and the disciples did not understand that. They thought that was belittling to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they tried to hinder those little children from coming to the, to the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus said, hey, suffer them not. Do not hinder them, and allow them to come unto me. So Jesus uh, was telling them and teaching them that those who enter the kingdom of God, those who are to be saved, must be saved like a little child. All must come to Jesus with nothing, just as a little child. And just as a little child, they are to trust totally in Christ. They are to be totally dependent upon Christ. No one can earn salvation. No one can earn their way into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is teaching that require, the requirement is the same for all, that everyone must have that simple childlike faith to enter in the kingdom of God. And so it is in this particular context that the person that we are going to read about in just a moment, he comes to Jesus having the exact opposite attitude toward Jesus. He has the exact, exact opposite attitude of that of a helpless child who approaches Jesus with fully trusting faith. Let's read this together, Mark chapter 10, verse 17. It says, Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, 
What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, in verse 21, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I want to speak to you on this thought this morning, earthly riches or eternal redemption, eternal salvation. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Father, we pray that you would do a work within us, through us, as we feast upon your word. Those of us who are saved, Lord, I pray that you would uh, just show us how uh, great the salvation that you have bestowed upon us really is. And Lord, I pray for those who are unsaved. Lord, I pray that you, by the working of the Holy Spirit, would convict and draw them unto your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we love you, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. There are three things I want you to notice with me as we look at this particular text of Scripture. The first thing I want you to notice with me is this young man's status. This young man's status. Now, this particular event, this happening in the book of Mark, chapter 10, is a very important event. And we know it's very important because all three of the synoptic gospels, all three of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, recorded this in their Gospels. Of course, they were led by the Holy Spirit to do so, but it shows us the importance of this particular event. One thing that each writer wanted uh, to, to convey about this particular man was that this man had privilege. He had privilege. All three Gospel writers tell us that this man was a rich man. Uh, Matthew 19, 22 describes him as a young man. But when the young man heard that saying, so, but we, we saw also in, in that verse that he went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had great possessions. So he was a man of privilege. That is, he, he lived a life of privilege because he had great possessions. The world was his, we could say. Anything that he desired, anything that he wanted, was well within his reach. He had privilege. He had position. Luke tells us in Luke 18 and verse 18, it says, Now a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So he was a ruler. He had position. This probably means he was the ruler of the synagogue, much like uh, Nicodemus was the ruler of the synagogue. In John chapter 3, this young man was a ruler. He had position. 
but he also had prestige. According to all the information that we gather about this young man, it appears that outwardly, at least, he was a very moral man. Outwardly, he lived a good life. People all, all over the region probably looked up to this young, rich, moral, religious leader. But with this and with this wealth, many times it creates to an individual a self-sufficient attitude or self-righteous attitude. And we'll draw this out more clearly next week when we see that Jesus says how hard it is for those who have riches, who have wealth, to enter into the kingdom of God. And so we see this, this young man's status. But notice also this young man's search. This young man's search. In verse 17 of Mark chapter 10, it says, Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, at the very start, at the very beginning, this young man's encounter with Jesus, there are several things that we can commend about this young man. There are several things that we can say, hey, he did good. He had a good start. He does some right things. So notice in verse 17, his commendation. That is, he went to the right person. If you have a question about eternal life, there is none greater than you contacting the man who has life within him and who is the giver of life. This man went to the right person. He went to Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The apostle said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he went to the right person. He asked the right question, didn't he? He asked an all-important question, Sir, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He came pondering the issues of eternity. He, he wants to know that how he himself might inherit eternal life. He realizes that this world is not lasting. He realizes that, that this world in which he lived is temporal, that there's coming a time where he is going to die. He asked the right question. He asked the question in the right way. So it seems. Notice the Bible tells us that he knelt before him. He knelt before Jesus. This shows us that there, there at least he has an understanding about the significance of Jesus to the degree that here this ruler who had position and prestige knelt in, the, in public's eye to this rabbi. He comes while Jesus is, is in the road. No doubt there are multitudes and multitudes of individuals there, but yet this man seemingly humbles himself to know and, and, and to want to find an answer to this question that he has. So this man gets a lot of things right in this encounter to which we ought to say, hey, he did good. He went to the right person. He asked the right question. He seemingly asked it in the right manner, but sadly it is the things that he gets wrong. That causes him all of his trouble. So we see his commendation, but notice, secondly, we see his confusion. 
Now again, notice the question in verse 17. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? The word do implies a sense of action or a sense of performance on his part. And so this young man is seeking to understand what specific works do I need to do to ensure that I'm going to have eternal life. In other words, he thinks salvation is something that can be earned. He believes that salvation is something that he must do. He is looking for a do-oriented salvation. He wants to, uh, he wants to have salvation. Uh, he wants to have his hand in salvation. He wants to get his salvation like he has gotten everything else in his life. He wants to earn it for himself. In his mind, he thinks that salvation is some reward. He thinks it's because he has done so many good things over and above his bad things. And because of that, that God will reward him with eternal life. But you see, the Jewish context here is very interesting. Wealth was often seen as a sign of God's blessing. And it was expected that a devout person would be wealthy. And the more devout you were, the more wealthy you would be. Or at least that was the context. And so in the cultural context of first century Palestine, keeping the commandments was highly regarded as a means to righteousness and eternal life. And so you see how this rich man's question really exposes a fundamental misunderstanding of salvation. His question implies a work-based mentality where eternal life is earned through our, our, our personal merit or our adherence to religious laws. Like many in his culture, he believed that righteousness could be attained through the outward observance of keeping the commandments. But beloved, listen to me, I have said this a thousand times as your pastor. Salvation is not rewarded for for faithful service. Salvation is the free gift of God's grace. We can never do enough to reach a place where God would reward us with salvation. So salvation is not a reward for our service, but rather it is a gift of grace. This is why Jesus said in John 10, Jesus said, I give them eternal life. I give them. They didn't earn it. We don't earn it. Salvation is a gift. But many people, even today, believe that they have to do something to be saved. Many people are just like this rich young ruler, believe that somehow, some way, they have got to put their hand in it to earn it, be it join a church or get baptized, give or become a moral person. That list could go on and on. But beloved, listen, the Bible teaches that salvation is never about our doing. It's not of works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his what? According to his mercy, he saved us. Listen, beloved, salvation through Jesus Christ is always about done Past tense. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he said what? It is finished. He did it all. 
And there is nothing you, can, you and I can do to add to it or to get it on our own. Salvation was achieved by Jesus when he died on the cross and he rose again. And it is received by us when we receive what he did by faith. So salvation has never been about what we can do, but it has always been about what Christ has already done. So the question he asks, good question. However, this young man already had his mind made up as to what he believed the right answer was. Okay? Now let's notice his challenge in verse number 18. Notice his challenge. It says, So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. And so when Jesus hears what this man believes about salvation, Jesus challenged him in two specific areas. Number one, Jesus challenged him concerning the character of Jesus. He challenged him concerning the character of the Savior. This man had called Jesus a good teacher or a good rabbi. But Jesus reminds the man that there is none good but one that is God. And so when Jesus makes this statement, he's calling this man out. He's calling this rich young ruler out. Now, obviously, this, this man here considered Jesus to merely just be a teacher. But Jesus is saying, hey, look, if you call me good, and, in the, and the only person who is good is God, then who am I? I'm much more than just a teacher. He, the, the correct response from this rich young ruler should have been, well, Lord, I believe you are the Son of God. You are God in the flesh. That would have been the correct answer. And listen, it's so important that you understand that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Because before anyone can be saved, before anyone can be converted, they must come to a correct understanding of who Jesus Christ is. This man had a faulty understanding of who Christ was. And there is no salvation given to anyone who does not come to a correct understanding of the character and the divinity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is good because He is God. He is not just a good moral man. He is not, he is not just a teacher who was sent to show us the way. Jesus does not point out the path to life, but He Himself is life. He is the way. So he had a faulty understanding about the, about the character of the Savior. But notice also he had a faulty understanding concerning the condition of his own soul. Jesus said in verse 19, he said, hey, you know the commandments. I mean, here's a guy that is a ruler of the synagogue. And if any Jew knew the Ten Commandments, this man knew them front to back and then some. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And so when Jesus gives this young man this list of commands, it, it, is, it is not to imply that salvation comes from keeping the law. Remember what Paul said in 
uh, Galatians, if righteousness could come by the law, then Christ died in vain. If we could be saved by keeping the law, if we could be saved by our good works, then Christ, Calvary was a blunder. It was a waste of time. So he's not insinuating that at all. But Jesus here is trying to show this man that this young ruler is a sinner. Jesus is attempting to get this man to be honest about his spiritual condition. He's trying to challenge his understanding of righteousness. And so Jesus aimed to help this rich young ruler recognize that that mere outward obedience to the commandments does not equate to true righteousness in God's eyes. We know his response, don't we? What was his response? Well, verse 20 tells us we see his confession. We see his confession. And he answered and said to him, teacher, These things I have kept from my youth. In other words, I have never committed adultery. I've never murdered. I've I've never defrauded. So this man responds to the Lord's challenge by telling Jesus that he has kept all of those commandments since his youth, since his bar mitzvah, the age where the Jew would count um, coming to the age of accountability, to be able then to keep the laws the commandments, age 13 and up. He said, I have kept those things from 13 years old up. But sadly, this reveals his response, just reveals his utter failure to truly understand his, uh, his sinfulness because his self-righteousness blinded him to see his own sin. He says he's never committed murder. He's never committed adul- adultery. He's forgetting the fact that out of the heart, those, those things happen first, right? Jesus said in Matthew uh, chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, if you lust after a woman, you have committed adultery already. If you have hate in your heart, you have committed murder already. you telling me that this young man growing up never at one time dishonored his mother or father? He has. This man is fooling himself to say, oh, I've kept these things since the days of my youth. No, he has not. No one has that ability. Notice, thirdly, we see this young man's status. We see his search. Notice, thirdly, we see this young man's sorrow. In verse 21, we see that Jesus gave some requirements. Notice the master's requirements. Verse 21, Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. Now when Jesus hears this man's response, the Lord reaches out to this young man, And he tells him in in very clear terms how one can inherit eternal life, how one can be saved. But before we look at that, we notice the Lord's compassion upon this man. I, I, I love that phrase where it says he looked upon him and loved him. I love that. I'm thankful that by grace, Jesus looked upon us with love. I'm thankful that Jesus loves sinners. Jesus saves sinners. And Jesus, after hearing this man's 
um, understanding of his own sin, his misunderstanding of his own sin, Jesus looked at him with really pity and loved him and then gave him the truth. You see, Jesus' love for this rich young ruler does not imply unconditional acceptance or unconditional approval of his spiritual condition. Rather, it demonstrates Jesus' commitment to revealing the truth in love, even when it, even when it involves challenging individuals to confront their sin and their need to repent of that sin. So we see the Lord's compassion. We see the Lord's confrontation. Jesus here gets to the heart of the matter. And of course, the matter is the heart here. Jesus says, hey, I know that there is one thing still lacking. You say you've kept all these things, but there's one thing lacking. This man, Jesus knew this, this man needs to get rid of the God's he already has before he can ever receive the true and living God. This man was worshiping the God of wealth. This man was worshiping the God of self. Bottom line. So this call to radical discipleship is not merely a suggestion. Jesus is not giving here a gentle invitation to follow him. Rather, it is a summons to complete surrender and it's a summons for this young man to give his total allegiance to Christ. What does that entail? Well, for this man, Jesus details it. Knowing this man's heart, knowing this man's God, Jesus commands to sell his possessions. It's, and of course, it strikes at the very core of this man, the very soul of this man, because I said earlier, for a man to have wealth in this day or in, in this context of our passage of Scripture meant that he had status. He was somebody. And so this command underscores the radical nature of discipleship, which requires a willingness to let go of everything that completes for our or that competes for our devotion to Jesus Christ. Notice the Lord's call. The Lord's call, he says, to take up the cross. Jesus' call to take up the cross symbolizes the willingness to embrace suffering, to embrace rejection and even death for the sake of following Jesus. Now, this man, being a first century Jew, knew what the cross symbolized. He knew that the cross was a symbol of suffering and shame and humiliation. It was only reserved for those who were criminals and outcasts. But by inviting this rich young ruler to take up his cross, Jesus prepares him for the reality of discipleship, which often entails hard, hardship and persecution. It signifies a radical re reorientation of one's priorities where the pursuit of comfort and the pursuit of self-conservation gives way to a life of sacrificial love and obedience to Christ. Then he says to take up your cross and follow me. This just culminates the, the imitation altogether. And of course, this call is not just about uh, physical proximity of being close to Jesus physically, but rather it is an inward devo uh, devotion, having an intimate communion with Christ. To follow Jesus means to walk in his ways. 
And so the question for you today is this, are you a follower of Jesus? Now, a lot of people say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. Well, if you are, then honestly ask yourself this, are you walking in his ways? Do you love his word? Do you obey his word? Do you identify yourself with his teachings? Does your life align itself with his purpose to glorify God? So th- listen, this requires what daily commitment to, to deny oneself daily, taking up the cross and pursuing Christ likeness in every area of our life. It beckons us to count the cost. It beckons us to embrace the cross and follow him with unwavering devotion and obedience. Have you willingly released your grip on everything else and reached out to him by faith? That is what Jesus is after. Now, Jesus, again, knowing this man's heart, knowing this man's particular love for his wealth, pinpoints it with him, hey, you ought to be willing to sell everything you have and follow me. But what is it that you're holding on to? What is it that you're holding on to and you're not following Christ? You're not embracing the things of, of God. Whatever it is, let it go. Get rid of it. That is the demand because anything less will not save your soul. So Jesus is calling us to make a lifelong commitment to follow him by faith. So we see the master's requirements. Notice in verse 22, sadly, the man's rejection, the man's rejection. But he was sad at this word. When he heard what Jesus said, he was sad and he went away. He walked away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So in essence, he wanted salvation. He wanted eternal life. But guess what? He wanted it on his own terms. He wanted it on his terms. And when he heard the Lord's demands, he was sad. The word means to be under a dark cloud. We're also told that he was sorrowful or he left grieving. So this is a man who is brokenhearted. He is absolutely grieving at the words of Christ. And listen, it did not have to be this way, but that's how it turned out because of his love for wealth and those things that are temporal. Now, there are things that we can learn from this passage of Scripture by looking at this man's decision. Number one, he made an earthly decision. This man made an earthly decision. Think about that. He's asking a question about eternity. He's going to the right person. He's asking the right question, but he chooses. He decides and makes an earthly decision temporal decision. In other words, he chose possessions over Christ. He loved his money more than he wanted to be saved. He loved his money more than what, more than he loved hearing the truth. So at the heart of this young man's dilemma lies his deep-seated attachment for his earthly possessions. Jesus said at another place, what what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Oh, listen, this man had a great question of eternity, but he made a decision that was earthly, temporal. But at the same time, with his decision, 
he did make an eternal decision. That is that this young man, this young rich ruler, one day was going to get old. One day his age is going to catch up with him and he is going to leave this world and enter into eternity. And because of the decision that he made, he chose the earthly over the eternal. And now that choice has eternal consequences. That choice has eternal consequences. So we learn this from this passage of Scripture. We learn this, the fleeting treasures of this world. The treasures of this world are fleeting. You can't keep it. Even if you were to gain the whole world, what you gain, you can't keep. It's all fleeting. And if you die wealthy, somebody else is going to come behind you and spend all of your wealth on some things that you didn't want to spend it on. The fleeting treasures of this world, our true treasure, should be in Christ. That's the, that's the premise. You, you want to find true treasure? You look to Christ. You do not look at things. You look to Christ. So Jesus offers us an eternal treasure that surpasses all earthly possessions. He offers us himself. He, beloved, is the pearl of great price. He is that hidden treasure worth sacrificing everything to obtain. That's what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 13. He's the pearl of great price. So in essence, here this man comes to Jesus. He loves money. He loves wealth. And Jesus offers him this pearl of great price, this, this gospel salvation that's worth $24 billion. And this man turns away from that. And compared to salvation and to compared to the gospel, this man clung to his pennies. Jesus is the pearl of great price. He is the hidden treasure. It is in Christ we discover the fullness of joy, the riches of his grace. He alone satisfies the longings of our heart. And he offers us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. You come to Christ releasing everything that you're trying to hold on to. Whether that be the God of this world, whether that be wealth, whether that be the God of self, you let go of those things and you cling to Christ. I, I love this verse of the song that we sung just earlier, Take My Life and Let It Be. And let it, be. it says, Take my silver and my gold, not a mite, not, not a, the smallest measurement of of monetary gain, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use it, every power as thou shalt choose. Oh, listen, that is what this young rich ruler should have done. Lord, if that's, if that's what you're asking, I gladly get rid of it because eternal salvation is worth much more than monetary gold and silver. Are you in Christ? Are you following Christ? Well, listen to me. Here's, the, here's the, the great thing today. We're living in the day of grace. Today, you can come to Christ. Today, you can be saved. And you can have and you can know that you have eternal life. 
And that is by you repenting of your sin, turning from your sin, clinging to Christ, believing in him fully. And Jesus said, if you'll come to me, I will in no wise cast you out. Don't turn that away. Here is the most richest thing that you could ever encounter, and that is the gospel of Christ. Put your faith in the gospel today. Let's pray together. Our gracious and kind Heavenly Father, Lord, what a tremendous passage of Scripture. Lord, for everyone, those of us even who are saved, Lord, how easy it is for us to get wrapped up in the things of this world, to, be, uh, to get so overly consumed with those things that we can grab. Oh, Lord, help us to let go of those things. Help us to see the riches and the richness of the gospel. And Father, we pray for those who are lost today. God, I pray that you would do what I cannot do. And that is give them an understanding of who your son Jesus is, that he is the son of God. And as your word tells us that you have given to him all the fullness of the Godhead and you have given him the authority to judge. But if we'll come to him now in the day of grace, he can be our savior and not our eternal judge. So Father, I pray that you give understanding of who Christ is. Lord, give understanding of our sinfulness. That though outwardly we may look like we're pretty good, but Lord, you said in your word that it is the, what's on the inside that corrupts, corrupts man. All of our evil thoughts. Lord, I pray that many would come to Christ today. Father, we love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand. As I say oftentimes, if you have any questions about what I have preached about or if you're being convicted about salvation and, and needing to be saved, I am available after the service and would encourage you to come and visit with me and so we can talk more intimately about your need of salvation. I do want to say uh, thanks to all the visitors who are here. We're glad that you are here, and we pray God's blessings upon you. Let's dismiss in song.